0: Welcome, everybody, to the Kona Shame Veterinary Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Andy Work. I'm here with my friend, Dr. Jules Benson. Today, this is a wild one. We talk all about uh, we talk about artificial intelligence. We talk about data management. We talk about uh, senior pets. We talk about what we can learn from gathering of empiric data, how vet medicine falls short in that regard, and how we might fix it. We talk about breed predispositions for uh, for different diseases. We talk about using empiric data to practice a better spectrum of care and offer better uh, options for people uh, who are looking to take care of their pets. It is it is a sprawling conversation all about data and the future of vet medicine and how we're going to manage cases uh, in the in the future. So anyway, it is, boy, it's a super fun episode. I i's packed full of ideas. I think you guys are going to really like it. I really enjoyed it. This episode is brought to you and free by our friends at Nationwide. So thanks to them. Guys, let's get into this episode. This is your show. We're glad you're here. We want to help you in your veterinary career. Welcome to
1: Cone of Shame with Dr. Andy Rourke.
0: Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Jules Benson. Thanks for being here. It's great to be back. Good to see you, Andy. Yeah. I, I love having you on the podcast. For those who don't know you, you are the vice president of pet health at uh, Nationwide. You're also the chief veterinary officer at Nationwide. Just like you're just doing, just doing yeah, a couple I of mean, jobs.
1: I, I just, I would say, you know, heavy is the is the head that wears the crown. You I mean there's multiple <laughs> of those. No, it's um I'm very lucky in that um we get to do a lot of stuff at Nationwide. We we were just when you and I chat, we talk about all the cool things that people in our industry get to do. And uh, Dr. Emily only who who works at Nationwide with me and I. We get to do a lot of cool stuff. Nationwide's very good yeah. to us about letting us do cool things and cool research. So, pretty pretty lucky to have either of those two titles, much less both of them.
0: Oh, totally. That's amazing. Yeah, you guys, you guys are doing cool stuff. I got to see Emily Tincher at uh, the Uncharted conference back in April. And I always loved seeing her. So we got to visit. A lot, up, geez, a lot
1: of energy. a lot of energy. She's the all day, every day. So there's, it's it's great. But you know, it's also like, you know, come on. I'm an old man now. I can't, I, I can't keep up with with young people anymore? <laughs> oh
0: yeah. Well, you know, as you as you move up the ranks, you have people that you can that you can send out on farm calls, as we say. Let's talk a bit. You guys have got you guys have been publishing like mad recently, and so I keep having you and Emily on, and we're talking about different research publications that, that are on. You were on recently, and we talked about the research that's come out on brachycephalics and super brachycephalics, which was actually I thought that was really really interesting. I did, I think about it every
1: time I go to the dog park. Um, I I, I love I would, so it's it I, it's extreme Brachycephalics, but I love super Brachycephalics. Super,
0: like, oh, I'm sorry, extreme, I, extreme.
1: I like that are, no. and like it's like because they need it, they need the help. So they I'm do. Like, we, <laughs> I,
0: I think super Brachycephalics is gives a positive spin to a dark to a dark condition. I I went. Uh, I took my daughter. <laughs> I took my daughter to do a 5K fun run like last weekend. And so it's our first fun run and we're there together. It's put on by the local uh, humane society, right? So they had a donation thing and everything and we we had done it. And then as I got there, like people were encouraged to bring their dogs. And as we lined up like hundreds of people to do this run, I realized this is a bad idea. Like I love pets, but this is objectively (laughs) a bad idea. And then they were like, everyone who plans to run fast come to this end. And like everybody went to that end. And so, so they're like, they didn't have a starting gun. Thank God. But they were like, ready, set, go. And everyone takes off and they're just, there's dogs running, there's leashes everywhere. And I was running behind this woman who had an English bulldog on a leash and it was running in front of her, like going as hard as it could. And then it just ran out of gas and sat down and she okay. hit that thing and caught her foot and we just went straight down and there was a pile up. And the other dogs were like, what's going on? And there's <laughs> leashes, like trip wires, you know, being pulled and just, uh, I was like-
1: I hope they were my, retractable leashes because we, we, we all love retractable leashes. Oh yeah, oh, things. it was
0: totally. Well, how else do you run in a crowd except with a retractable leash? It's like, I was like, jump, Hannah. We like, we spr- we did not stop and help. We jumped over the pile and continued oh, our- Over the
1: super spran- breaking cephalic dog. <laughs>
0: <laughs> super didn't look so super then buddy uh, flying past him but no the other the other bright spot of that of that run was we were coming out at the end and there was this lady sitting on a bench and she was holding this old chihuahua and he was completely unconscious like nose you know up on her neck and she uh-huh. she just looked at me and she said he's done He's done.
1: As I was if like, he, yes, he is. He, was just, he just left the house, and he's done. Like, oh, is, yeah, absolutely. exactly. <laughs> I mean, just, he's done.
0: He's done. So anyway, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Anyway, that's enough. That's there a bit go. of a tangent, but yeah, I right, totally worth it. Okay, so let's put the super extreme breakisphalic aside. Super extreme
1: brachycephalics.
0: Yep. You guys have turned out. You turned out two papers last year. The last one came out at the very end of the year on uh, the science or sort of the uh, the, the data of aging and aging pets, and the first one was was canine heavy. And it was actually really cool for anybody who didn't see it. So this paper was really neat in that it looked at a bajillion dogs. It was something like, in all seriousness, it was like what, five and a half million. So this one was, was just, This one was only
1: four million. Four, so, okay, yeah, only four million. Okay, only four million. So I <laughs> didn't. I'm glad you caught me there. I don't want to over <laughs> well, oversell it, but it's important because, like, um, I remember uh, when I was working, um, on um. To abandon when when we were looking at the studies that were being done. And the Epic study, if anyone hasn't seen that, the Epic study was an awesome multi-center study on, on congestive heart failure in dogs. And it was so effective, they actually stopped the study early because they didn't want the control group getting the placebo anymore. Because they found the right. drug to be so effective in in treating you know, early signs of cardiac disease. And that was like, I think I want to say five or six hundred dogs. So, and, and of course, that was a you know, that was a multi-centric, you know, blinded study. So that's a, a different animal, but just to to think that most of the information we get in animal health is hundreds, maybe sometimes thousands of dogs. So when we talk about having millions of of years of of dog data or feline data, it has real power. And I think that's what we found in this aging pets research. I think it's awesome. I I don't, I don't feel that there's a lot of
0: that research that's out. And and that that brings me around. I want to touch quickly on the second paper, which is a bit more more sort of feline focused and, and senior senior feline patients. But 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 really, what I want to sort of talk to you about, and we can get into some of the some of the the data on the senior pets and everything. But you know, so you and I have talked a lot about spectrum of care. And it's something that that I'm really interested in. I, I think it's really important. You know, I, to me, Spectrum of Care is all about balancing the needs of the pet owners and and access to care with advocating effectively for the patients and and meeting the needs of the hospital. And I think that that is a very worthy goal. And I think that that's probably how we should approach practice. And so I look at that, and so I, I look at Spectrum of Care and and think about you know what we do. And and one of one of the, one of the Sort of pushbacks that I get sometimes is that people seem to think that when I start talking about spectrum of care, they're talking about freestyling. They're just like, oh, the The veterinary medicine. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. Like, oh, you're talking about going back to some old school, like, you know, put some cephalexin in a LRS bag and maybe some B12.
1: Rub some dirt on and everything's good. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And and, and like, that's that's what we're talking about. we're talking about, you know, there's, there's the gold standard of care and then there's often and increasingly often, very acceptable
1: silver standards of care that that may very well be what what people need or what they're able to do. Yeah, and, and I think even the wording is interesting. So even internally, I think we we start in the same place and we started saying oh gold and then and then when we talk about vet schools, we talk about platinum level of care. And I think we've even started to move away from those words in, in our in our everyday lives. Of words matter, you know. I think we're all we're all navigating that in our own ways, but we've started to try and use advanced and basic. I think for some of the reasons that. You know, when, when you put gold or silver or platinum on something, just because of how we're conditioned, we're also actually thinking, well, that's the, that's the best thing. And it may be the highest level of medicine, but when we look at, and the, the basic level of care, just to go back to that, so basic to advanced, basic is not below the standard of care. And I think it's really important that people help to distinguish between standard of care and gold standard of care, right? I think that's, that's been the, the, the issue we've had sometimes is people think that unless you're offering the very highest level of care, you are not meeting the standard of care. So the standard of care is that at which, you know, you or, or any other veterinarian in your position would, you know, the minimum at which they would they would do to treat the animal, you know, to maintain the welfare of the animal. And so we're certainly not talking about the Wild West. We're talking about, you know, people's ability to, you know, if you have a dog with a fracture, for example, you know, it's it's okay. there's, there's a basic level of care that involves splinting and pain management. You know, that that may be that may be anathema to many people listening in practice and saying, like, how could you have a lead dog walk out of a practice? Well, limp out of a practice on a, on a splint uh, and on pain control. But that is an acceptable basic level of care. You know, it may be more, we may be saying, well, you should really go to the referral clinic down the road and get it pinned. For sure, that might be a better outcome in the, in the short, and medium term. But the, but we're also looking at what is the evidence base to say that splinting isn't going to have a similar long term effect for the majority of dogs than having a more advanced level of care. And I think that's what you're getting at that that evidence base, Ryan. Right? That's exactly it. And and, and I love that I love that you use that example. You know, it's
0: it's not a higher standard of care if the pet owner doesn't actually go down the road. And now the pet does not have a, a real splint or effective pain control for the duration, you know, of their of their pain. I would say, oh, well that was by sending them to a referral clinic when they didn't actually go was a much worse outcome, not because of anything the practitioner did. But just because of the realities of the circumstance, so I, I think that's an excellent way to put it, and a good, a really good example.
1: And so, so well, I think as I said, the level of care is, I mean, it's it, finances come into it a lot, and I would just put a I put a small pin to say it's not always the what they can afford; it's it's what they're able to prioritize affording, right? I mean, I think you can have people who are making decent money, but they have other things they're doing. It. It's either they have, you know, four kids who are all of a young age, and like people, people choosing to prioritize their money in different ways. I think we as an industry have a really hard time with that, and I, I understand why because we see ourselves as stewards and guardians of the pets, but ultimately we're also there to try and make sure that the best outcome is there for everybody, including the the pet family, right? So we have to be. I always try and think of you know my time in practice and try and, and the times where I was judgy, frankly, and I was like, well, why why did this person do this or why did it do it this way? And just trying to think back, I would love to have had that time back and to be able to step outside of myself a little bit and to be a little bit less judgmental about how people chose to engage with veterinary care.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely agree with that. I guess for me, it's not always about, it's not even always about the finances, really. There are different components that there are some people who do not want to hospitalize a patient, not because of the money, but because they don't want to be separated from their patient. And so you say, well, them not being hospitalized is a lower standard of care. I would like to hospitalize them. I really would. Um, it's not a, out the money, I think a lot of times we, we go straight to that. But I still put that in a spectrum of care to say, yeah, I think if you want to measure and say, you know, this is the penultimate approach, or this is the ultimate approach, and and this is this is a much more conservative approach. I would say, well, it's a much more conservative approach, not because you can't afford the uh, you know premium advanced uh, you know standard of care, but because of of what this person needs uh, for themselves. So anyway, I think there's a lot of different reasons for it. I think. What I what I'm really interested in, and kind of where I wanted to go, and we're already sort of starting to to move in this direction, but we're, we're already flailing like, as we always do. We're yeah, spy, we're not. <laughs> it, it feels like flailing. I promise you, it's like we're right on course. We're going directly where I want to. Exactly. Um, they. The thing I want I want to talk to you about is when I think about uh, standard of care and I start thinking about what is advanced versus basic, and I, I I don't always know, Jules. Like I don't always know and say, do I need to add? Uh, you know, can I can I be this conservative or is that not where I need to be? Are there subtle things I could add or do differently that would have a significantly better outcome for the patient? Are there things that I am really pushing for because I think that they're mission critical, but in reality? They're not mission critical, and this I could do this in another way. I mean, the the classic is you know the parvo uh, treatment outpatient versus inpatient, and boy, when we start talking about treating parvo patients outpatient, people just it was thought it was heresy, you know. And then you get some real data behind it that people can can show and say, oh, we can do this very effectively. Outpatient, but that was just unheard of until you got some data to support it, and then you say, okay, we've got a protocol and, and we've got a way to approach this. And so, I guess what I wanted to do with you is, so you know, you've done such a good job at Nationwide of of starting to collect data and starting to utilize data and starting to put data out into the uh out into the community about what uh you know what this means and, and what outcomes we can look for and and what actually seems to make a difference in our treatments. And so I, I just sort of want to start talking to you at a philosophic level. It's like talk to me a little bit about data collection in our cases. Um and and, and sort of where does that, how essential is it for us to, to be gathering data? And where does the acquisition of data like this big data, nationwide level data, where does what does that do
1: for us? Well, this is one of my. I mean, how much time do we have? We have four hours for this, right? That's why. This it's a <laughs> standard four-hour
0: Tony Shame podcast.
1: So I'll try and be. I'll try and be brief. So I always ask when I'm talking to to rooms of of veterinary professionals about data. I always ask them if they've read the um, ABMA AAVMC Veterinary Futures Commission summary document. And there's right. usually like in a room of 100 people, there's a couple, right? So this is yeah. it's an 18-page. They're, they're doc-
0: lying. They're a li- lot. They're just. They're just they are people who want to feel important.
1: They thought I said Harry Potter, and they're like, "Yeah, I've read yeah." It. Um, so it's a it's a it's an eighteen page document. It was published in October two thousand nineteen, and it's it was written by people that you and I know, right? So Eleanor Green, who's you know fantastic, you know previously uh, dean at, at Texas A and M. Um, you got Adam Little, who was on the podcast recently. You got Jason Johnson, who is you know CBO at IDEX and former dean of, of uh, LMU. So. Like some really super smart people, and, and what it does is really lay out what do we need to do to be to, to prepare our industry for the next ten to twenty years. And one of the things it lays out is we've got to be better at data. Like we as an industry are just, I don't say we're so far behind the ball. It's, it's we just don't even have a, as a consideration. If we think about even our PIM systems, you talked about um, you know collecting data. Our PIM systems we use them as a glorified cash register, right? You know we use them to record you know our medical notes. And if we're lucky, you know, some structured data, and by which I mean, hey, if you record the weight, it's in a separate field, not recorded somewhere in the medical note, right? So, if we're lucky, we're getting more and more practices who will use the structured data aspect of it. Now, um, you and I have talked before about you know AI and machine learning and that type of thing. I think we're going to reach the point where practice management systems will get better at helping us gather our data in better ways. So we'll be able to say, hey, I see you put in the notes, you know, BCS five of nine. I'm going to go and put that in a discrete place somewhere or I'm going to put it in the data lake so it's accessible as, as a piece of metadata. So I think we'll start to get systems that are smarter because I think asking us as clinicians to change the way that we do things. And I think uh, anyone who's worked at a band field or something like that, you know, like there's, there's these medical, you know, record systems where you're asking, you being asked to, to put in, you know, multiple, multiple fields. I think it's just the old system. I think they've got much better at band field in the, in the, in the past 10 years, but it used to be that you have to put in multiple, multiple fields. And it's hard to do. Like here's, here's a clinician, you're trying to see the pet. So we'll get systems that are better. And then what can we do with it? I mean, that's how we get evidence-based medicine. So what we're trying to do at the moment and what's the result of uh, the aging pets uh, paper that you talked about right now, we're able to, to take this massive you know, trove of data and say really interesting things about where are the diseases we're seeing? What age are the pets? What breeds are they? What sizes are they? And right now we're focused on kind of identification, education, and intervention. So we're saying, hey, we know that, for example, miniature pinches um, are going to be a really high risk for pancreatitis and, you know, diabetes. So how do we prepare the parent? How do we help the, the veterinary healthcare team leverage their time and their resources best, have the most relevant conversations with owners of senior, you know, um, miniature dobermans and like, and, and you know, and, and have that quality conversation. Long term, the goal would be, Exactly as you said, let's look at an intervention, whether that's, you know, pancreatitis, for example, let's look and see what drugs they used and kind of what the outcomes were, what were the rechecks, how were they feeling at home? Like, and, and actually, you know, these, these recording of people's, um, how they're feeling about their pet, this, you know, um, client specific outcome measures, this is more and more what we're seeing in human medicine as well. Like, does it really matter what we as clinicians feel is the most fitting clinical resolution? Or does it matter how the pet family feels when they're at home after having their pet seen? Does your pet seem better? Are you okay with the treatment? Like, what, what, is, how are you feeling about the outcomes? Those are things that we can be collecting and our current levels of communication software are getting better at. But the sooner that those things are all integrated into one data set, I think the better, the closer we'll be to getting true evidence based outcomes. Okay. So, so I have a lot of. Different, I can go a lot of yeah, different
0: ways it was here, but it's um, <laughs> great. But you got, you got, you've got my gear sort of spinning in a lot of different ways. Are you guys doing now? Are you doing sort of um, satisfaction with treatment communications with pet owners? Is that a thing that nationwide collects or that other pet
1: insurance companies collect or, or that vet clinics even collect? So it's, it's something as an industry that we're not doing well. And I think when you, so I, I first saw this when I started looking at, um, I was on the project doing um, pain scoring. And there's a there's a Cincinnati Pain Score, and it uses um, clients, this this CSOM, client specific outcome measures as a way to say how is the pain as the as the observer of the pain how do you feel the pain is at home how do you feel the resolution of the pain is, and it's something that we 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 talk about more and more. And I think just having been to a conference on uh, human technology and and um, kind of that interface, getting that aspect of the pet health journey or the health journey is increasingly important and I think if you if you think about I mean we're going off on a tangent here but if you think about um, compensation and you know we we think about our compensation as as Benry healthcare teams we don't really have a good measure there's a couple of clinic chains doing this now but we don't really as a, as an industry have a good measure of how satisfied people are how likely they are to come back how how good they felt about their experience getting some more of that but it's usually on the on the, the lines of you know, net promoter scores. Yeah, no,
0: that's what I was just thinking. What is
1: the clinical satisfaction with the medical situation you have? Um, and so I think, it's, I think it's something that's really powerful because to me, if we just start to look at, at, at more reasonable measures of compensation, because I think our production-based compensation puts us in a, a tough spot. I think if we look at spectrum of care, it's one of the areas, I think it's one of the main pushback areas for spectrum of care is like, does that mean we're going to make less money as a practice and as frankly as an individual? And it's not something that veterinarians are saying, like, I, I, it's important I make money, but they're also like, hey, we have to run a business. And there are aspects of spectrum of care, which I think we can talk about another time where we think that's less of an issue. Like if you're doing more mm. crucial ligament surgeries in your practice, that's a more lucrative, you know, um, kind of proposition than sending them out, for example. Oh, yeah. Um, but but the client-specific outcome measures, that could be, to me, that's a crucial part of our industry moving forwards for both, both evidence-based care and for our ability to measure the... Um, the impact we're having on our clients.
0: Oh yeah, no, I, I think so. Again, a, lo- a lot, there to unpack. I, I'm really interested. What, in what do you call this one, Andy? I don't, I don't know. I what know. Was, <laughs> I, we're, I'm going to come up with a title. <laughs> that's handy. And Jules wander in the in the in the course of the future.
1: Point. Exactly. Yeah.
0: No. So, so uh, there's a there's again there, there's a lot here. You know, it's funny. I um, I thought for a, a long time. You know, we talk about spectrum care, and and, and I think a lot of it is in the one of the benefits of that approach is you build trust and you tend to have longer term relationships and so while I do think that you know you might not see the maxed out average client transaction you would see if you just like this is the only option is go hard as you can on, on this treatment I, I do think that you tend to keep those clients longer and I think over the life of of the of the client not the pet but like you you can build these relationships. I had mean, I, I had a guest on recently talking as well about what he was seeing as the future of uh, of that medicine. I was really I really struck by it. But his position was that we would be probably utilizing our paraprofessionals more, and then general practitioners would be taking back. A lot of the types of cases that we've gotten in the habit of referring away that definitely could be done by a general practitioner practicing at the top of her or his license. And I like that. I thought that was really interesting as well. And so I'm not sold on the idea that practicing a more conservative approach in the moment when you have a sick pet is ultimately a, a, a net negative. And, you know, in the, in the revenues of the practice, I think it can be financially healthy uh, as well as, as well as, you know, feeling good and feeling like we're doing right by the
1: pet. Well, and some of the research we did, which we'll, we'll publish hopefully more on later this year with the Mind Genomics team really does talk about that. And it's, and it's the, the clients who are most likely to say yes to advanced levels of care also would prefer to stay with the practice. They would prefer yeah. to have things done at the practice because they, you know, they have that bond and they have that trust. And I think we, and, and, and it's too strong to say we're doing ourselves a disservice, but when I was in practice and being able to do things like, you know, I was very lucky in the practice I was in, they were teaching me you know, lateral sutures for crucial ligaments and I was able to do perineal urethrostomies and like, some complex surgeries. Like, I was very lucky they put me in a position to be able to do that, but it also ended up being like, some of the most satisfying work I did on a, on a purely technical skills basis. And and it, it feels, when we when we talk to rooms full of veterinarians and I ask how many people are able, are actually doing, you know, crucial ligament surgeries within general practice, it's very, very few now. Um, and I do think that is one of the things from a spectrum of care point of view that we may be losing as a profession.
0: Switching gears here, Talk to me a bit about artificial intelligence and its requirement for data. And so, I've been looking a lot at like ChatGPT and things like this. And and I see, I see this. Uh, we call him Chad in my house. Chad uh, is ChatGPT. So Chad makes recommendations when we talk to him. Uh, and you know, hit and miss. I'll just tell you, hit and miss. Some some good advice and some not so good advice. I um, just so you know, if you ask uh, ChatGPT if it knows me, it will say yes. And it will talk about a veterinarian doing positive, and then it will tell you that I wrote a book about the seven
1: stages of grief, which is hundred percent not not true. I've never, obviously, I've never Googled myself because I, you know, I, I'm not, you know, that egotistical. But if I were to Google myself, um, there's actually a Pilates teacher called Jules Benson, same spelling as well. And it was, I think, for a long time we had like a Google Google war of like who was who was coming first. <laughs> so you can find my my Pilates uh, instructional videos online. Um, there you go. I'll, I'll be looking for this.
0: <laughs> so, so anyway, I I have this idea that that artificial intelligence, as uh as a, as a quick reference in the clinic is is coming, and I'm like, man, think of the power of being able to just. Run our blood work through AI and have AI be like, you know, here's the top five things that I would look at, you know, based on the the breed, the signalment, and you know, and these diagnoses that we're looking at. And so I I brought that up, and I think I may have been talking to Emily about it, and she was like, "Yeah, the the data that's required to generate that type of learning is just not out there and accessible." And so can you can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, for sure. So I mean, and again, I I'm not putting myself. You know, you had Adam a little on. I think Adam's d- dug in a, into a lot more than I. But I have a, a basic understanding of the situation. So the good news is, we're already seeing some pretty well trained models in clinical decision support, right? So you talked about blood work, and I think one of the ways that AI can be really helpful to us as a profession is when you've got um, multiple sources of information, and you're once it gets beyond four or five our brains aren't really good at synthesizing all those things and putting them together and putting them together in a picture, right? We, we tend to get a little bit lost and we tend to put the wrong emphasis on the, uh, on the, the wrong place, um, always on the wrong syllable. Um, and one of the things that AI can do for us, if, if we can create big enough data models, and this is what you're getting at, if we have good, high-quality enough data models by which we mean, you know, uh, structured and standardized data. It doesn't even have to be standardized that well to have AI take take advantage of it. But until we have more structured data to learn from, it's going to be really hard for most existing AI models to pull the information it needs out of our medical records. There's just so much inconsistency out there. If you think about, and I was just, I used I used the soap, you know, um, the template when I was in practice, and almost everything about the clinic clinical, you know, picture was in there. There was very little in a structure. There was nothing, you know, outside of temperature, weight, breed, age, all those types of things. There wasn't much else that was contained in there until we have a way to actually increase the size and quality of those data sets. And to me, that's where, um, when we talk about data interoperability, so the ability for you know us to exchange medical information between systems, that to me is the big promise of like, if we look at all the big companies who are in animal health, they must have AI on their roadmap. And to do that, you have to have a high quality you know kind of basis of data, uh, and I think that's what we're all driving towards. The problem is how do you get them to invest at the early stage to drive that forwards when the promise is three to five years out right yeah, no that and that that totally makes sense.
0: digging in kind of the last sort of last thing I want to say is when you look into your crystal ball, given sort of where you're saying you know we need to be investing in data, and it sounds like i i i don't I don't get to read that you're wildly enthusiastic with how how veterinarians are going after data collection at this time. I, I, I mean, I get what you're, I don't think that you're not being critical, but I, I get the impression that you're not impressed with my putting in the uh, the weight, the temperature, and the technician's initials in the, in the, in the practice I management. I mean, software. I like
1: your style when you do it, Andy, but, but the way, <laughs> the, but how you're actually, no, um, I think it's, a lot of what I hear, and and when I talk about interoperability, I'm not talking about medical coding, that's something separate. And we've had a lot of talk in Embry Medicine about that. To my mind, we can't ask the clinicians to do more work. In order for us to build a good data foundation, it has to be integrated into the way that we work at the moment. So if, mm-hmm. this, and, and there was some really, there was some interesting practice management tools and we're always starting to see more of them where it's taking the work that we're already doing and then making it into data that makes sense on the back end. So right now, I mean, invoices are the most structured data that we have. And if you think about, if you're giving out, you know, 30, you know, remodels, 75 milligrams, how many different ways are there of saying that on an invoice line item? There's a, almost an infinite number of ways you could write that, right? But you know, that the, a good enough system should be able to say that is Remedol, the manufacturer is, so it is, and it mm-hmm. is this miller. And so be able to normalize and standardize those data. Basically, we have to have smarter systems on the front end. So I, I think we as an industry have to ask for those things. I don't think it should be incumbent upon us as clinicians to to, to say, well, you have to put all the data into different, into different places because it's just not realistic given our current environment. In ten
0: years, do we have those systems? Are we does practice look different than it looks now? Tell me about that.
1: I don't think practice looks different, but I think the tools that we have are better at understanding what we're putting into them. So like exactly so exactly as you said, like if you and, and we're already seeing some of these um, AI aided Tools for you know um, speaking into our systems, and we're already seeing tools that will take free text and, and do cool things. Like we couldn't have predicted. I mean, if five years ago, I think we thought GPT was science fiction, right? And I think what they what this we've been able to do, and all of us who've been playing with it, have been kind of blown away by how good it is. So I don't want to underestimate how good that might become at getting parsing things like medical records going forwards. But I think we'll get smarter tools on the front end, and I, and I hope we'll have better levels of data exchange, which will allow greater development of AI machine learning tools on the back end. Oh, that, makes, that makes
0: a ton of sense. I'm going to put links to the aging studies part one and two. Uh, I may put a link to the super, super brachycephalic uh, study <laughs> so people can see that if they want. Uh, do you have other resources that you like for people who are, who are data wonks, who are I, just like, man, I, I love this. I love,
1: I love what he's talking about. I want to l- know more about kind of where we are and where we're going for the, for the three of those people who might be listening um i think uh <laughs> I, I would definitely google the uh AVMA A- A- v- M- C- A- v- M- Veterinary Futures Commission and um, that'll bring you to that document which i think is an awesome read um and then um i'm always posting about this stuff on linkedin so you can find me there um but otherwise uh we we're, we're still building i think we're, we're still building the the foundation for how we move forward in this. So at uh, the Innovation, the Veterinary Innovation Council and the Association of Veterinary Informatics, I know there are teams there doing important work. So we'll see what the next couple of years brings.
0: Outstanding. Jules, thanks for being here. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Thanks, Andy. And that's it. That's what we got. Uh, guys, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got something out of it. Thanks to Jules for being here and talking with me. As you can tell, uh, we we enjoy each other's company. We are We are good friends and I am always thrilled to have him around and thanks to nationwide for making this uh episode possible for everybody gang that's it that's all i got take care of yourselves be well take care talk to you soon bye